Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Before we jump into the episode, thank you to Kate for joining our Patreon and getting some of those a sweet, sweet bonuses. And we are creeping closer to that super secret special 100 patron gift, y'all. Um, if if you want to know what it is, you can just ask. Yeah, you could you could ask us. We'll tell you. We're yeah. just not going to tell everybody all yeah. at once until it's until it's ready. Um, listeners, there are lots of ways you can support the dirt if you like the podcast. You can join our growing fam over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast at any tier. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which is a major help to us and free. You can recommend us to folks or assign our episodes in your classes. Any class, geometry, philosophy, shop class, sure, yeah. All of those things give the show a boost, and we are so grateful for every type of support we get from every one of you. And on this week's installment of our summer field season, I am making uh, use of that six-month <laughs> subscription to a newspaper archives that I accidentally paid for, and we are heading out into the wild world of semi-fictional archaeology to explore some possible real-life inspirations for the world's most famous archaeologist and someone who happens to share a birthday with the dirt, July 1st, hey. uh, Dr. Henry Walton Jones. So. Hey. We've got ourselves a guy roundup today, but first... Round up the guys! <laughs> come get your boys. But first, <laughs> we should probably review the man himself. Yes, Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. Born July 1st. 1899 in Princeton, New Jersey. Wow. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I think a lot of archaeologists love the Indiana Jones trilogy. As far as I'm concerned, it is a trilogy, and we will be mm -hmm. speaking no more about that. Put your tweets away. But the fifth but one has everyone in it. Put that away. They just keep they keep casting people. I'm in it now. <laughs> <laughs> but, Look under your chair. You're in it. Archaeologists do, not all of them, love this movie. But... Archaeologists also simultaneously deal with the cognitive dissonance of loving the adventures of a man who is very, very bad at archaeology. Right, let's face it, Dr. Jones, the younger, does a lot of great research, reading maps, deciphering documents, sure, finding X's on floors in libraries. They've been there the whole time. But he also spends a lot of time destroying pieces of archaeological sites. He never writes anything down or records any context. And the phrase, that belongs in a museum, hasn't aged well. Not everything belongs in a museum. Uh, punching Nazis is good, though. We're fine with that. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first installment in Indy's adventures, is 40 years old this year. Yeah. Just take that in for a moment. And despite the problems I just laid out, the iconic films did, for what it's worth, make archaeology a sexy. Is that a good thing? 
sort of. I mean, it inspired lots of people to become archaeologists. I'm quoting here from a National Geographic article from 2015 titled, How Indiana Jones Actually Changed Archaeology. It's a write-up of an exhibit at the National Geographic Museum that combined movie memorabilia with actual artifacts. Um, And it'll be on our show notes. Yeah. Opening Thursday, Indiana Jones and the Adventure of Archaeology. I see what they did there. Brings together movie memorabilia from Lucasfilm Limited, ancient objects from the Penn Museum, and historical materials from the National Geographic Society archives. Some of the artifacts are real. I mean, arguably all of the artifacts are real, like they exist in the material plane. Yeah. <laughs> but- <laughs> Some of the artifacts are real, including the world's oldest map, a cuneiform tablet showing the city of Nippur, pieces of 5,000-year-old Mesopotamian jewelry, and iconographic clay pots that helped unlock the mystery of the Nazca lines. Other objects, like the Shankara stones, the cross of Coronado, and a Chachapoyan fertility idol were imagined for the movies. But they still exist. They're props. (laughs) Yeah, they're still props. And then there are some that hover in the fact or fiction netherworld. The Holy Grail, for instance, and the Ark of the Covenant. Since no actual Ark has ever been found, the one built for the Raiders of the Lost Ark on display at this exhibit has become the iconic image, hmm. a case of life imitating art. Oh, they missed the chance there life to write imitating life imitating Ark. Come on. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Uh, hire me, Nat Geo. The point says no, really. exhibit cure. <laughs> hire me. <laughs> I'll write for you. The point, says exhibit curator Fred Hebert, a renowned archaeological fellow, meaning like a member of the felt, like he's not just like, I'm a fellow. Hello. At the National Geographic. This is written by National. Come on. I'll write for you. Is (laughs) (laughs) so the point of the exhibit is to show how much these films have broadened the scope of archaeology and made the field more relevant and exciting to people everywhere. He goes on to say, these films introduced so many people to archaeology. We can document their impact statistically based on the number of archaeology students before and after the first film. Some of the best archaeologists in the world today say Indiana Jones was what sparked their initial interest. That's a great legacy for George Lucas and for the relationship between popular media and science. End quote. Is that a good legacy? (laughs) I'm no longer quoting from that. (laughs) When you break down exactly who well, you these know, characters, like, I, it's you know it's because of of George Lucas that I grew up to become a Tie Fighter, that I grew up to become a small trash can shaped droid. Beep boop, boop woo. Oh no! <laughs> Go on. So when you break down exactly who these characters are, what they're doing, and what that represents, it becomes thorny. These are stories about a white guy who shows up in countries colonized by various European powers and pings around trying to rescue artifacts or discover cities. It's impossible. (laughs) It's impossible. I'm a writer. It's impossible, unfortunately, to have Indiana Jones without the accompanying specter of colonialism. So along those lines, here are a couple of excerpts from a 2018 piece on Hyperallergic by Daniel Gross, titled The Casual Colonialism of Lara Croft and Indiana Jones. And for the record, the Dirt podcast makes no claims that Lara Croft is an archaeologist. Just, again, put your tweets away. These characters still celebrate khaki-clad Western heroes who trample precious sites as they reduce the study of other cultures to a grabby hunt for treasure. 
Other works in the same genre include Tintin in the Congo, mm-hmm. Secret of the Incas, The Mummy, what? Tintin. Tintin. And his dog, Snowy. It should be like Nezhuz. <laughs> anyway, uh, other works include the ones I just said, The Mummy, The Lost City of Z, and anything nice that has ever been said about Christopher Columbus. You won't find any of that on the Dirt Podcast. Sure won't. The archaeological adventure story has had a considerable and troubling impact, according to Christopher Heaney, a Pennsylvania State University historian. He says, quote, what we consume when we're younger really, really shapes us, whether it's Indiana Jones or Leaky digging up hominids, end quote. Although the character of Indiana Jones arguably raised the profile of archaeology as a whole, and Lara Croft could inspire young women to go into the field, both figures have little regard for the cultures whose histories they collect. Heaney said, quote, it still promotes a problematic smash-and-grab mentality to irreplaceable artifacts and lives, end quote. Suzanne Pilar Birch, a University of Georgia anthropologist, is similarly critical of the archaeological adventure genre. She says, quote, it's part of the colonialist tradition that reinforces the white heteropatriarchy, if you want to use jargon. End quote. I mean, if you do, that's a good one to use. Still, the genre's enduring popularity doesn't surprise her. She said, quote, maybe that's the most realistic thing about the movie. Archaeology is still a very white discipline and field archaeology is still very male. End quote. And so here's the kicker from that article. The problem is that these films rarely spend any time considering the actual cultures from which artifacts are stolen. Indiana Jones is supposedly a professor. He got his PhD. He's Dr. Henry Walton Jones. But we almost never see him reading, writing, or speaking to the living descendants of the communities he supposedly studies. Artifacts that have cultural and spiritual value are described as either mysteries or priceless treasures. They exist to be solved or sold instead of preserved as the tangible heritage of past generations. End quote. So can archaeologists enjoy Indiana Jones and similar adventure movies and franchises? Sure, I, I think so. But maybe we should also spend time sitting with the real context of those adventures. And maybe we need a new cinematic hero who's a more up-to-date archaeologist. Like a real real person. Eh. 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 Well, <laughs> until then... <laughs> yeah, I don't have any suggestions. I'm not volunteering. I got a face for podcasting. Oh, you got a great face. Thanks. So if there's one thing people love doing, it's describing archaeologists as a real life Indiana Jones. And if there's two things people really love doing, it's that. And then also describing old man archaeologists from America as the inspiration for Indiana Jones. So yeah, they're tied for first. There are so many people that have been suggested as inspirations, including like anyone who was an archaeologist that went into the field before like 1976. <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. Yep. Like just everybody. Checks and out. so um, there's some varying degrees of, of reliability of those suggestions. But let's focus today on a handful of the choicest options. Mm. So only the one choicest of the first dude. Cuts. I'm so sorry about all the barking. It's just a very exciting day in the they're just Zambelli dog household. They're outside now. They're all oh, outside okay. barking. So, okay. Great. Hey, um, the dogs. What do you what want? If, silence. Just a few minutes. <laughs> what do you want? What do we want? Silence. When do we want it? 
Anytime. So one of the first suggestions I remember ever hearing kind of came as a duo. And that duo is James Henry Breasted and Robert Braidwood. So I've always assumed that the biggest connection is their affiliation with the University of Chicago, because that's where Indy got his PhD. Did you know that? Got his PhD at the University of Chicago. Um, yeah. I know. Wow. I, I, I don't know why. I know so much. Did you just pull all of this off the dome? Did you just know this? I knew a lot of this. Oof. <laughs> so, but are either of these dudes particularly indie? If we're going to evaluate this purely on that belongs in a museum terms, then James Henry Breasted is your guy because he's the one who founded the Oriental Institute at Chicago. Remember him? He's on the Timpanum, the Timpanum. I, sorry. I, I do remember him. And thank you, you for him? also helpfully including his picture. Do you see him? He is being handed the light. No, he's not. Orient. That's not him. That's that. No, no. He's, he's. No, that's man. Yeah, that's that's just that's just. That's man. just <laughs> Western man. White, wet, this Western is the, man. the torch of civilization being handed from the east to the west. Um, mm. He's he is, is he in the pith helmet on the right? No, he's below the guy in the pith helmet. Oh, he's just it's like, just, here's this face. Yeah, I'm looking at it. He's holding a pot. Yeah. Um, so he's on he's on it. But so he's I the think one he might also be holding a magnifying glass. Oh, yeah, I think, he, I think he's, he's doing, like looking at it. He's really doing closely. analysis. Um, he's so, doing a science. So it's so the Oriental Institute is his baby and um, it's now celebrating its 100th year. And so it's still called the Oriental Institute after 100 years. Um, but I did, I'm not going to include this in the show notes. I did read an article where they're like, well, you know, that, that term's kind of fallen out of the vernacular. So we're going by the OI. So now if you go to their website, it just says, oi. <laughs> it's very funny. Oi, indeed. <laughs> but as for daring, was he daring and dashing and all that stuff? Well, um, I found an article um from 1898 and a, Gosh, in, a newspaper, <laughs> in a newspaper from Wilmington, North Carolina. And I read this and I was just like, this is so uh, old. <laughs> I know that like, that's the thing, like you and I deal with prehistory and yet show me an article from 1898. And I'm just like, Oh, well, like the I March spend of a, time. I spent a lot of time reading articles from like the fifties and just like having like 50 years, like 55 years difference in terms mm. of tone. And I was mm-hmm, just like mm-hmm. reading stuff about uh, James Henry Breasted. I was just like, oh, Victorians. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, here, here is him blowing some minds. Okay. Headline, how the pyramids were ir- erected. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be erected, but it just is maybe. And I was just like, is this a Victorian thing? You don't want to say it because it sounds too... Mm-hmm. Subheadline: <laughs> A story of ancient Egypt. Professor Breasted describes the methods employed in heavy construction. Everything done by human strength. The workmanship was so skillful that the joints in the masonry were invisible. Article. You the hear visit, that, ancient aliens. <laughs> 1898. The visit yeah. which Professor James Henry Breasted paid Atlanta last week was like the throwing of a searchlight over the dark waters of the past when the world was young. Was it? A great many people would frankly confess that he made clear to them much that had been vague and mysterious about the most ancient civilization of which anything is known today. Oh, boy, have I got news for you, Victorians. (laughs) Yeah. So um, and then they say Professor Brester is probably (laughs) 
is probably the highest authority on Egyptology in America. He holds the chair of Egyptology at the University of Chicago and has charge of the Egyptian collections in the university's Oriental Museum and also of a similar collection in the Field Museum at the Old World's Fairgrounds. Um, so, so he was a big deal and yeah. and he was sort of one of the kind of cornerstones of American archaeology and its like development. Um, and then there's his student, Robert Braidwood. And so it's often been argued, I've seen, that Robert Braidwood was the inspiration for Abner Ravenwood, who was Indiana Jones's mentor. Right? His, yeah, his dissertation advisor and um Marianne's dad. His, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, the the proud owner of a really truly luxuriant mustache. I know he looks sinister in this photo. He does, but he, he does. Also looks he like a friend of mine. <laughs> a bit sinister so. friend. Um, yeah. So Braidwood, um, we mentioned when we talked about Jericho. Yeah, uh, briefly yeah. because um, so he he worked in that region and he was a pioneer in archaeological research because he, along with his wife, who was also an archaeologist, Linda Braidwood, um, they they worked together at Jarmo um, and a few other places. But they were really the ones that like made prehistory pop off in terms of like <laughs> a, a subject of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they worked, they looked at sort of uh, what would become to be understood as the Neolithic revolution and moving from the rise of agriculture, the rise of agriculture from nomadism to sedentism. And so very, like very big deals in archaeology. Um, and so Robert and Linda Braidwood were married for 66 years and and collaborators for almost all of that time. And until per the New York Times in 2003, in a theme that we're going to have in this episode, just like New York Times obituary headlines are (laughs) very funny. (laughs) Two archaeologists, Robert Braidwood, 95, and his wife, Linda Braidwood, 93, die. Um, And so that's an unfortunate headline. No, I know. But it, and I'll include the link here because they talk a little bit about their research. But what I find very sweet, and we don't see a lot of sweet things in this episode. No. Um, no. So they uh, they passed away within hours of one another I know. in the I same hospital in 2003. So. Mm-hmm. Um, they were right. that is very sweet. Yeah, they were they were they were each pioneers in their own right in the same field. Um, so and a power include, couple. Total power couple. And I will include a link to a really great Trailblazers piece on Linda Braidwood. Um, and before we, we got to get the rest of Trailblazers on the show, we're, we're, we're two for four. <laughs> we're almost there. Um, <laughs> and so um, there's one more little wrinkle in this one. Um, and yes. that is a, a mystery. That is a package that arrived at the University of Chicago's admissions office on December 12th, 2012. Do you know this story? I read the script. Okay, great. So it was addressed to Henry Walton Jones Jr. And so they were like, who? And so nobody in the directory matched that name. They're like, we don't have any faculty by that name. Um, And then there was a student employee who was like, hey, um, that's Indiana Jones. (laughs) And and then according to the story that was published on the OI website, about a past exhibition that they had, which included this. Um, Six days after its arrival, the mystery was solved. 
The package, a collection of replica props from the Indiana Jones films, had been purchased online and shipped by its maker from Guam to Italy. The original packaging was lost in transit, leaving only the parcel addressed to Henry Walton Jones Jr. at the University of Chicago, where it had been forwarded by the Postal Service. So (laughs) it was... So on the prop, it was like, this belongs to... No, it was an envelope. It was a prop envelope Uh, in which he would have gotten some mail. And so there were like old-timey stamps and it's addressed. And so all of the props were inside the prop envelope and it had lost the packaging. And the postal service was like, well, I guess I'll just send it along. Even though it would have been like, if it had a postmark at all, it would have been a postmark from like the 40s. (laughs) <laughs> but then again, I have gotten stuff via media mail that did arrive like years later. So maybe they were just like, oh, media mail did it again. Wah, um, wah. And so uh, the Oriental Institute, boy, made a little, Oy, a, a little mini exhibition about it of just being like, uh-huh. um, stuff. So did the person who bought it was like, did were they ever just I, like, that's my stuff? I think maybe. And they were just okay. like, that's funny. Or maybe they were just like, it didn't arrive and they just got a, like a new one sent. Hmm. Um, I don't okay. know. That's the real mystery. <laughs> Some guy in Italy is like, eh, <laughs> my stuff. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Anna is going to introduce us to another contender of a more naturalist bent. Possibly, arguably, total smoke show. But we'll see. <laughs> We'll see when we get back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, Membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. And next in our roundup of guys, we have Roy Chapman Andrews. This guy. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Much like the inside of the back storage rooms of many a museum, there's a lot to unpack. We'll start with a bit of biographical information, most of this taken from a 2012 blog post at Scientific American. Roy Chapman Andrews, born January 26th, 1884. I I almost went until I born January 26th, 1884, but that's not the right era. Arguably, it's never the right time for that voice. (laughs) Roy Chapman Andrews was an American explorer, adventurer, naturalist, mammalogist, and later director of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. The Um, best museum. 
quick thing that you'll probably, you probably, we should cut out. All righty. Is a mammologist like what? Somebody who'd be like, I'm a boob man. Is that no. like a nice way to? <laughs> no, I think that would be something like a mammarian or something. Oh. I'm Thank you. Dr. Breasted. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to cut that out. We'll see. See how I feel. As a young man, he worked as a taxidermist, a self-taught art, arguably a chilling sentence, to pay for university. After graduation, he attempted to get a job at the Natural History Museum in New York, but at the time, there were no positions vacant. Chapman, however, responded that he was even willing to clean the floors if this could bring him into the museum. The folks at the Natural History Museum were surprised by his ardor, and he was hired as janitor and assistant taxidermist. Maybe mocking him in a friendly way, he was assigned every morning to mop the floors in the taxidermy studio. The afternoons were then devoted to real taxidermy. So he just showed up and was like, give me a job. And they're like, thanks. I I really want a job. I mean, I got got a mop. I like to sew animals together. Mop together. (laughs) He wasn't making jackalopes. He was. No, no, no. But like sewing their part. Anyway, Andrews then visited Japan and China, where he collected animals and experienced the particularities of the Far East. Yikes. In 1920, he persuaded paleontologist and museum director Fairfield Osborne to organize an expedition into Asia to search for fossils of the early ancestors of mammals, including humans. Not the early ancestors of of all mammals and humans grouped together, like the early Mm -hmm. ancestors of mammals and also of humans who are mammals. Between 1922 and 1939, Andrews and his team carried out five expeditions into previously poorly mapped or unknown areas of Central Asia, a vast desert plagued by blizzards, sandstorms, snakes, floods, bandits, civil war, and an insecure political situation. The mission of the expedition, carried out with an odd combination of automobiles and camels, was to recover geographical, archaeological, botanical, zoological, and geological data, but especially to discover the fossils of early hominids. This is a weird article. Makes it sound like the camels were driving the cars. That is a weird combination of automobiles and camels. Big paws. They're pit paws. They don't have paws. (laughs) There are various elements in the Indiana Jones movie resembling the life of Roy Chapman Andrews. Indiana Jones is introduced in the first movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981, venturing to Nepal like Andrews ventured in the Far East. I mean, okay. (laughs) Yeah, again, this is a weird article. Jones' most recognized attributes comprise a 38 Colt and a fedora hat, and various photos of Andrews show him with a broad-rimmed hat. Hmm. During expeditions, Andrews loved to hunt animals for collection or cooking, but he also used his pistols to defend the expedition from bandits. Who he then cooked. No. Perhaps his best known discovery was a collection of dinosaur eggs in the Gobi. The public went nuts for this, much to Andrew's chagrin. For one thing, he wasn't the first person to discover eggs. (laughs) Specifically dinosaurs. Have you heard about eggs? They're amazing. A French priest had done it decades earlier. Ah, (laughs) laser, sacre bleu. Oh, no. Oh, a priest would never swear like that. And for another, Andrews didn't even want to talk about it. He thought it distracted from a more important discovery, the full skeleton of an oviraptor there to steal the eggs in question. Okay, that was very cool. Andrews, on the hazards of being an explorer, quote, 
To meet the popular conception of an explorer, a man must have suffered cold, heat, starvation, fever, attacks from wild animals, and savage natives, yikes, and must have been bitten by snakes. Snakes are essential. If you haven't had snakes, real ones, you just can't be a proper explorer, end quote. Sir, well, I now more fully understand this clipping from a newspaper, which is... Again, I've seen Hannah's newspaper clippings. Yeah, no, this is a great one. Um, (laughs) Unfortunate divorce of the man who discovered dinosaur eggs. Roy Chapman Andrews and his wife, whose romance was so beautiful, again, this is in the newspaper, have just been separated by a Paris decree, though they were often called the most devoted couple in exploration because they have faced death together so often in the Chinese deserts. Um, And and they're they're holding a dead bird up. Yeah, they're just like, here's... I'll take one wing, you take the other. It's a, I don't think that's a dead bird, I think. Or is it taxidermied? I don't know. It's a golden eagle. Okay. It's like a golden eagle. Anyway, and there seems to be someone taking offense at the idea that Roy Chapman Andrews had anything to do with inspiring Indiana Jones. Amber, what's what's this little nugget you so pasted here for me? I found on not one, but two um, pieces of, Separate of pages, information yeah. about uh, Roy Chapman Andrews that allowed comments. The others unfortunately didn't, but I think he would have done this too. We have um, a gentleman named Steve who's commented. I won't give his full name, but because this is exactly the kind of person that we would get a message from. <laughs> yep. And, um, and so Steve, last name withheld, writes, uh, ellipsis. No, it wasn't ellipsis. Whoever that guy was, he was definitely not the the inspiration for Indiana Jones ellipsis. So two different two different occasions. Word for word, the same comment. <laughs> Just copying and pasting. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, Steve. Sure. Nobody's sure, saying Steve. he was. Um, so let's move on to someone else with an, another great name. Hiram Bingham the third. That's a good name. Um, Hiram Bingham III was not an archaeologist. He was a specialist in Latin American history before Latin American studies were even really a thing. And in fact, like it was like hard for him to find someone to supervise him um, because it wasn't a topic of of study. And they were just like, well, we don't do that. And so he ended up being, um, I think he was he was at Yale. He was a professor at Yale. And he, <laughs> he was, was his own... <laughs> Supervisor. Um, well, no, he, no, no, no. That was after he got his PhD. So when he was a professor, he was at Yale and he was in the South American studies department, South American mm-hmm. history, because mm-hmm. like Latin American history, like wasn't recognized. So he taught, he taught courses on it because dear listeners, Latin American studies um, did not really exist. There were people who did it. There were people who studied topics that fell within what is now the umbrella um, of Latin American studies. It didn't happen until well into the Cold War because area studies were established and funded um, by Title VI. Of, and the, mm. So there was a um, congressional action taken and then the that established area studies in the U.S. because they wanted to have specialists in different regions of the world and they, like particularly the third world so that we could better counter the threat of communism. So mm. um, that's how Latin American studies came about as like all the other types of studies if you're in Middle Eastern studies, like area studies mm-hmm. in general, that's when that came about. So he was sort of ahead of the curve there. 
Um, and in 1911, he's, he's possibly most famous for in 1911, he discovered Machu Picchu in Peru. And much like um, Angkor, remember we had like the white guy who discovered it, but actually not only were people like, well, yeah, it's right there, but also yeah. there were like previous white guys that had shown up <laughs> and like had also seen it. Um, and it was a situation like this, because I think in like the 1870s, there was a map, like a European made map that had Machu Picchu on it. <laughs> um, mm. But um, I will read you a little bit from a syndic- an article that was syndicated in 1913. Palaces on Peru Plateau. Explorer tells of buried Inca city uncovered in jungle had trouble with officials. Uh, Professor Hiram Bingham, head of the Yale Peruvian expedition, which has been conducting archaeological exploration work in the interior of Peru, reached New York with other members of the party from Colon. Professor Bingham said the exploration was conducted chiefly at Machu Picchu, the buried Inca city discovered on the previous expedition, which stands on a plateau surrounded by precipices 2,000 feet in height. The jungle was cleared away and more than 100 burial caves were discovered. Ruins of baths, houses, and palaces were also laid bare and practically the entire city uncovered. Professor (laughs) Bingham added that the jungle will soon cover them again unless steps are taken by the Peruvian government to keep them open. So remember, he's the head of this expedition, not an archaeologist. Nope. Um, other things that he did, he was the governor of Connecticut for one day. How'd he do? Um, he did okay. Um, huh. And so he had been the lieutenant governor, and then um, uh, and then like the governor, did somebody die? I think the governor died by suicide, Ooh. and he was governor. So he at, or he was like and then, he was there was a special election, and so he was elected, and then and I think he was just like was lieutenant governor, um, and okay. then for one day. But he had also been elected senator of Connecticut. So he was there for one day, enough time to resign so that he could go be senator. And so he was senator for Connecticut for two terms. There was a scandal. Um, and then he stopped being in the Senate and he just like kicked it. Um, but <laughs> on one of the articles that I found, Steve's back. <laughs> the same Steve. The same guy, same Facebook picture who says, uh, no, it wasn't. Whoever that guy was, he was definitely not the the inspiration for Indiana Jones. Steve. Um, and I'm so sorry to report that like nothing else that I used enabled comments. <laughs> if they had, Steve would have been there. <laughs> um, <Well>. and so, <laughs> so let's take another quick break. Um, again, we're not saying... <laughs> That any of these people were the the inspiration for Indiana Jones. Ellipsis. We'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion.
Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link. We're back. And before we finish off this episode with Amber's very special curated pick, I'm going to take us through a brief bro-down hoedown of a couple more historical dudes who might have contributed to the mythos of Indiana Jones. Calm down, Steve. And in case you're wondering just how many composite historical guys make up one Indiana Jones, according to Wikipedia's Indiana Jones entry under historical models, there are 18. 18 guys. But I'm just going to talk about two of them. Our first is William Montgomery McGovern. All of these names just mm. like they mm-hmm. had the same ring to them. They had the same something. Mm-hmm. McGovern was a political science professor at Northwestern University, and they are very proud of him. And actually, he seems to have been a pretty stand up guy, according to Northwestern <laughs> University. <laughs> um, but in general, he seems to have been a, a pretty cool guy. And here are some excerpts from a post on Northwestern University's website about him. It was the early 1920s, and the young adventurer William Montgomery McGovern had managed to sneak into Lhasa, the forbidden city of Tibet. Few, if any, Westerners had ever made the journey. To reach Lhasa, McGovern disguised himself as a servant and crossed the Himalayas in the middle of winter with Tibetan guides. During the journey, they got lost in a snowstorm, and McGovern came down with dysentery. (laughs) So far, ticking all the white guy explorer boxes, only because there aren't snakes where there are snowstorms. (laughs) During his life, McGovern became a legendary political science professor who taught packed (laughs) classes. Legendary political science professor. Who taught packed classes in Northwestern's Harris Hall, served as a military advisor in World War II, and earned a reputation as an unabashed conservative in an increasingly liberal academic world. Cool. Most of all, he was famous for his perilous adventures around the world. McGovern was a born adventurer. According to Time magazine in 1938, quote, his mother once took him to Mexico just to see a revolution. End quote. Although he was born in New York City in 1897, he spent much of his youth in Asia. At age 20, he earned a divinity degree from a Buddhist monastery in Kyoto, Japan. And in 1920, he published a book on learning colloquial Japanese. In 1922, he earned his doctorate from Oxford University's Christchurch College. Students and fellow faculty members knew McGovern as a charismatic, eccentric teacher and a captivating storyteller. I'm starting to see in this next line why perhaps... He had packed classes at Northwestern's Mm. Harris Hall. Mm. Mm -hmm. Described by the Newark Ledger in 1924 as a, quote, delicate looking man of medium height with fair face and dreamy blue eyes, end quote. McGovern later became known during his Northwestern days for his wild unkempt hair, his ever present pipe and the large otter fur cap and otter fur coat that he wore in winter. Ah, man. The real, like, hottie to weirdo pipeline, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Hottie to otter. (laughs) McGovern taught large lecture classes such as nationalism, politics of the Far East, Asia in world politics, and classical, modern, and contemporary thought. 
Sixty years ahead of his time, McGovern also unsuccessfully encouraged President Franklin Bliss Snyder to create a Latin American studies program at Northwestern. Oh, he was also yeah. See my previous point. So yeah, well, he, he's no Hiram Bingham, but you know, he was also vehemently opposed to McCarthyism and remained a vocal liberal his whole career, which contradicts the sentence before where they said that he was a conservative. So well, I he am just confused. like wasn't a fascist. Yeah, I guess. Is that like, I mean, hey, hey, we'll take it. So that article goes on with just gleeful flair. But let's move on to guy number two, who is Walter Fairservice. This comes from another winner of a New York Times obituary with a title that is very particular about the order of events. I don't know why they have to put that that verb in the, like, we know it's yeah. in the obituary section. Yeah, obituary, like QED. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, here's the title. Walter A. Fairservice, 73, dies, was archaeologist and author. So... Are you are you ready for a whirlwind description of a career? Buckle up. Here we go. Dr. Fairservice entered the Army Intelligence Branch in World War II and was assigned to General Douglas MacArthur's staff in Japan before returning to the museum in New York as a full-time staff archaeologist. He soon made a name for himself locating and exploring lost cities, some known only from legend. In 1949, he led the first American archaeological expedition to Afghanistan, where he and two associates found the imposing ruins of a long-forgotten imperial city. Could not find which one. It was forgotten. I looked. They forgot. But not after. And long forgotten. Forgot I mean, you don't. Wait, tell me, tell me what again. in that syntax suggests that. Yeah. Fair point. In 1960, Dr. Fairservice led a team to Pakistan and discovered a sprawling ceremonial complex. The find shed new light on the prehistoric Harappan civilization and the ancient people then inhabiting Baluchistan and the Indus Valley. While continuing his travels to remote regions, he prepared a Costumes of the East exhibition at the museum in 1970. It was boat shoes. I'm just thinking of like New Englanders and I got some boat shoes. Vineyard vines, belts. (laughs) those rope bracelets that are braided and then you wear them forever and they smell awful i like i'm trying to think of things of just it was like when we were in college so i'm just like puffy yeah. vests <laughs> yeah collared shirts with the college pop popped. collar yep mm-hmm. sartorial decisions i regret costumes of the east mm. anyway he made a different yeah, type know. of costumes of to, the east exhibition I was trying to rehabilitate his image <sighs> at the museum in 1970 Well, it's not going to work because here we go. That exhibition provided a taste of what was to come. The largest anthropological exhibition in the museum's history, the Gardner D. Stout Hall of Asian Peoples. Woof. For 14 years, Dr. Fairservice served as the scientific authority in planning that hall, which opened in 1980. Yikes. Yikes Yikes-a-roni. Yikes. Here's a statement that feels, that makes me feel great about my writing deadlines. He was a prolific writer of books too numerous for even him to remember, he said. Cool for you, sir. Said books included The Roots of Ancient India, 1969, The Ancient Kingdoms of the Nile and the Doomed Monuments of Nubia, 1962, and Cave Paintings of the Great Hunters, 1959. Most recently, he wrote The Harappan Civilization and Its Writing, a model for the decipherment of the Indus script, 1992. It's a short book. It's a really short book. What's it say? We don't know. And the archaeology of the Southern Gobi, Mongolia, 1993. And then 
Here's how it ends. He also wrote many plays, some of which were produced by the East-West Fusion (laughs) Theater, which was housed at his estate called Fairland. Again, a very cool. Oh, man. Oh, take us home, Amber. What a cringe monster. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, I'm obsessed with him now. Thank you. Uh, Because, as um, some people may know. um, Specifically me. Me, specifically. I'm really into. I know. I'm really into mid-century American archaeological research. And specifically, I am most into my golden boy, Wendell Phillips. America's oh. Lawrence of Arabia. And I think Wendell, like this, this episode was really just, I was like, I could talk about Wendell Phillips and we've spent a while talking about people who aren't Wendell Phillips. But this is great because he has a lot in common with many of these folks and also was inspired and modeled off of some of them. So um, <laughs> Wendell Phillips is, um, yeah, I think he's like the latest active the latest guy to become active in the field. Um, so roughly contemporary like in, this, with, in this lineup of, of guys. Yeah. Of these guys, of these guys mm-hmm. that we've talked about, like roughly contemporary with, with fair service, um, okay. roughly contemporary with Braidwood. Um, but he was born in 1921 to a working class family in Oakland, California. Um, and so he was very much like his memories, his life was very much informed by the Great Depression. And so he was like really scrappy and seems pretty clever, although there are many forms of intelligence, as we will find out with Wendell Phillips. Um, You can be a clever doofus. (laughs) Um, And so he was, he was a student at the University of California, Berkeley, studying paleontology. Um, And then he, um, enlisted in the merchant marines and and served in world war ii um and then he got polio and that is very that is what set him on his his course so while he went with while he had polio and he was recovering because he got it about eight years before the first vaccines came out um he was um so he had always been really into like adventure stories and he was a big fan of roy chapman andrews Ah. And um, so he got it in his head that when he got better, what he was going to do was plan the biggest, baddest, boldest, best expedition the continent of Africa had ever seen. And uh, so he just started, he just started writing letters to people and sort of being like, Hey, I'm really into what you're doing. This is great. And he was um, like a sales guy. So he was really good at convincing people of things, of convincing corporations to sponsor him. And so he led this huge expedition from like Egypt down to South Africa that was like 26 months long and had like 120 people on it. And he just like convinced UC Berkeley to like cover some of it and got like Chrysler to like give them trucks and just like had all of this stuff. Yeah, this expedition sponsored by Chrysler. But yeah. yeah. And so it was product. There was product placement. There was corporate sponsorship. Because there was news coverage of all of this. Oh, and he that was something else that he was really good at was like getting the press to follow him. So it was a lot of like splashy press that that exhibition expedition worked at Swartkrans in South Africa. I am familiar. And like I saw that like the cave was discovered in 1948. And so I, I, I perhaps 
it was discovered on that expedition. So this is what set him on his course of being a guy who was really good at talking people into stuff and really good at talking about himself, but didn't really know anything about anything. Because remember, he graduated with a degree in paleontology, which is something that he shares with most of the people on this list of people who were are considered inspirations for Indiana Jones by everybody but Steve, that they're not archaeologists. Most of the people are not archaeologists. They yeah. are other things. And, um, yeah. and I would argue that Wendell Phillips is an other thing. Um, <laughs> He's definitely and, something else. And so that went off well. Like that was successful according mm-hmm. to him. But we, like I haven't gotten to that part I mean, of my he research. He was the one so writing the books. He so. was the one writing the books and like and sort of conducting the interviews and stuff. And so after that, he was like, this is great. I found my calling. I'm establishing the American Foundation for the Study of Man. And so he became the president of it. he did. And then he was like, uh, he ran into the Aga Khan, um, who was like, Like perhaps you should go to, like the Aga Khan. Okay. Like the ruler of. It's like a a title that. A hereditary title. Yeah, it's a hereditary title, title. But yeah, he ran into him and he was like, perhaps you should go to Arabia. And he was like, Oh my God, I should go to Arabia. And so he decided that he was going to go find the Queen of Sheba. And so mm, he mm-hmm. did his thing and got a bunch of corporate sponsorship and all of this stuff and like talked a bunch of people out of their money and got a bunch of his bros to come with him. So it was a bunch of like 20 somethings named like Kenny and Dick and like Wade, oh, like actual names 50s. of the guys that were there. And then, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was them. And then there was this, um, uh, William Foxwell Albright, who was like, he sounds rich. He sounds stodgy. So he was a biblical archaeologist and like a Semitic oh. philologist. And like, he just wow. like, he was the head archaeologist, but he seems like he just kind of showed up. Um, and so they just kicked it. So they kicked it in, um, in Yemen. And I wanted to share a couple things about how people perceived him outside of himself. People in the U.S., people no. in Yemen, people... I'm good there. Okay. Because Tell me more. in his, so um, people in the U.S. had a very specific idea of him because he kind of controlled the media coverage. Uh, he wrote articles that were distributed by the United Press and the Associated Press. Oh, that's how um, you do it. He uh, was <laughs> like kind of cute and like charming. Yeah, he was a uh, weedy just like, kind of. Like yeah, just like a very s- earnest. Yeah. Um, open-faced kind of guy. Yeah. Like a sandwich. Open-faced. <laughs> just a little little tartine um and so he and then he wrote his own book he wrote a book about it um and if you look anna i'm looking look at one of the poll quote like the reviews on the back who reviewed it roy chapman andrews roy chapman andrews says one of the most important archaeological expeditions of the last two decades it was really um positive positive coverage curious coverage very um what's he doing over there yeah what's he doing oh he's so smart he's so great oh he's a leader of all this stuff oh my god uh but for the like colonial administration so uh what is now so he was in he was working in what is now yemen but it was actually kind of distributed across several polities um including varying degrees of british control and varying degrees of like local leadership and so Mm -hmm. he did a season in Behan, uh, which is, mm-hmm. is, is now a city in, in Yemen, but it was just the Emirate of Behan. And then he came back in Behan. And at the end of it, the, the British um, 
Charles Ng, who's the the guy at the foreign office, was like, you're an idiot. Your team sucks. (laughs) You got to stop. And he's like, I don't care. I got permission to excavate in Yemen. I'm going to Marab. And Marab is uh, seen as argued by some to be the capital of Shaba, which would have been Sheba, Sheba. which is where the Queen of Sheba was. So he got permission to go go find Bilkis. He he got the permission to go work in in Marab. So he and his secretary left. And so that's listeners to the show. I will have presented a paper on his secretary's role um, this weekend. But um, it's a great paper. Oh, thanks. They left to go do a press junket in the U.S. and get more money. And then part of his team went on to Marab. The Dick and the Wade and the Kenny, like they went. On the 9th of February... So I'm pretty sure he left on the seventh. Yeah, <laughs> two days. So, he, so they were. So he and Eileen Salama, his secretary, were in the U.S. and like London. Uh, they, they did some interviews there too. Um, through January, like January up until the first week of, of February. So on February 9th, um, and this is from the UK National Archives blog. There's a really amazing blog post on how the British foreign office felt about Wendell Phillips because they all thought he sucked. Like they all thought he was like a, like a total idiot and a liar and just like a huge pain and super rude. And um, he also in his own writing, like clearly had an issue with the British because it was sort of this sense of like competition and kind of a chip on his shoulder. And it was very, um, oh, very, no, uh, we, we call that a fry, a fry on my on shoulder. <laughs> So um, in these notes um, from uh, one person to another, this is Jacob to to Dudgeon, the two guys who are involved in the foreign office. He writes, his party is always heavily armed and carries a large amount of ammunition. It is composed mostly of very young men whose literature includes such books as the schoolboy's edition of Lawrence of Arabia. This may, found, this may sound very disparaging, but gives you a true picture of the qualifications of the expedition. Nevertheless, it is unfortunate that even this sort of expedition seems unable to tell us about Marav. Wow. And and then he, his next point in this memo is Phillips left Thais with his party on the 7th of February by airplane for Marib. Unless he can change the present arrangements, he should leave the Yemen by the 31st of March. So the, the projected plan was that they were going to excavate there. Okay. So what was happening in the inch, like while he was away and, and then in that first week that he was there was um, they were bad at it. And so um, there were a lot of um, the Wade and Kenny and Dick <laughs> at all. Um, they Charlie, they were um, they were under sort of surveillance. They were under watch by soldiers sent there by the king, and so the the Yemeni authorities said that they felt that they were smuggling antiquities out, and they didn't trust him, which is um and then they felt that they were keeping them that they were sort of like keeping them hostage and it was this whole thing and there was a general lot of, distrust by everyone towards and, everyone and so Great. a week later on the 12th of february week. the 12th of february the under um in the at like 6 a.m or something they wake up and they pack some of their stuff like but very quietly they put some film canisters in a box of post toasties and um and like 
You really have done your research. Well, like that's they talk about the post toasties because it's product placement. Um, ah, ah, yes. And, and they drove away in their Dodge Caravan. It was their Dodge Power, Power wagon. wagon. So they all got it and they told the guards, they're like, oh, we need to go over to site and get some photos. That's why we got to bring the guys. And they're like, okay. And okay. so they, they got in the car and they're like, let's go. And they like, <laughs> we gotta go. It. And so they left behind like, almost like a quarter million dollars in like 1952 money of equipment. They also hadn't paid any of their workers. Oh, um, cool. And so the workers That's were like cool. upset about it and they were like, they were going to kill us. And there was like, they probably like might like go on strike. Um, and so there was a lot of like back and forth about what might've happened. But what he did was he first went to, um, they, they went to Aden and then they went on to Oman and he became friends with the Sultan of Muscat and Oman and was yep. gifted with a rather large oil concession. And that's when Wendell Phillips shifted from archaeology to being president of the Wendell Phillips Oil Company. So he was just, he became just sort of like, oh, like a rich guy, like a, like a, a curious, a wealthy like guy who was also and into he, antiquities. He still did his expeditions and he fought, he subsidized from that point on, like the American Stud Foundation for the Study of Man. And Study he was just man. sort of like a, he was a guy that like loved press attention and, mm. um, and all this stuff. And um, one last thing I want to share about him is notes of a meeting between um, Hickenbotham, who was the governor the governor of Aden. Um, okay, so a so British he was, colonial. He was a, a uh, British to colonial diplomat. official. Yeah. Um, and so these are notes from a meeting between him and Phillips in November 1954. So a couple years, so he had just been like failing upward through the whole thing. Um, and he's uh, <sighs> taken by the notes. Mr. Will Wendell Phillips is in very, was in very good form, very outspoken, apparently extremely anxious to be of assistance, and everything he said he wished it to be understood was from his heart, and he did not in any way deviate from what was strictly true. In other words, Mr. Wendell Phillips was his, just, was his old self and just as big a liar as ever. And so I, I think that I wanted to end on my golden boy because I think that he is possibly based on all of these other um, examples that we use. In that Indiana Jones is a fictional character and a composite of possibly some of these men that we talked about. He's as much his own fictional character. He's as much Indiana Jones as, as any of them. Yeah. And so something else that he did, they were talking about how they have so much ammunition and stuff. So Wendell oh, Phillips he wore shooting his Colts. He wore two Colts. On his head. Colt 38s. Colt 38s. The same thing that Roy Chapman Andrews had. Uh, same thing that Indiana Jones has. Like, that's sort of like, that's what, like, oh, that's like what the, like, archaeological cowboys, like, wear. And so, like, people, like the British and stuff, like, called him, like, uh, Wendell the Kid and Cowboy Phillips. And he, he hated it because Ed also yeah. used a terrible shot. I have read so many accounts of people describing, of like talking about him, like just like just shooting, like shooting for fun, which is like a valid pastime. Shooting cans. Like yeah. shooting cans, um, trying to shoot spiders. <laughs> they have like large Wendell. spiders. So like, no, but like still, I know that, that's not a good way to dispose of a spider. Um, if you feel that you need to, I get it. They're very scary. Um, and, but they were talking about shooting cans and he could not hit them. And there's like video footage of like him shooting and be like, pew, 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 pew. Pew. I'm a it. cowboy. Which like, 
<laughs> Maybe this is just me showing my like good Mark's person privilege, but like, come on. Are you a good shot? I'm a very good shot. Wow. I've never shot a gun. I'm more of a bow and arrow kind of kid. That's what I bring to the desert. <laughs> Two of them. <laughs> oh gosh. But, well, um, I, that's your golden boy. That's my golden boy. So if you ever have any questions about Lyndall Phillips, feel free to ask me. I feel like I'm going to very soon become the world's foremost expert on him. But Gosh. this, but what I, what I was trying to say is like Wendell Phillips is if you took all of those other guys that we talked about and sort of rolled Essence them into of one, explorer. Yeah. That is what happens if you model yourself off of these adventure types because um steven spielberg and george lucas and lawrence kasdan see the screenwriter um you know as we've established <laughs> far more about indiana jones first of all than anyone needs to and second of all but like than, than i that we have like there are transcripts of like conversations of them hammering out the plot and it's like mm -hmm. not they didn't mention these guys they talked about that charlton heston movie uh the secrets of the incas like or whatever sure. it is like but like, all of this was in the zeitgeist because it's informed mm -hmm. by the news coverage of, of these dudes yeah yeah this yeah, was fun so this was fun oh, good i'm glad you had fun this is i did have fun i love talking about this Listeners, we hope you also enjoyed yeah. this field season installment and all of our all of our boys. It was a little um, bit of a summer break. Yeah, a little summer cinema, kind of. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back in your ears next week with a new episode. But until then, if you miss us, you can find all of our back episodes, literal days of listening at thedirtpod.com. You can also find us on social media. Where we're we on social things. media. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're on Facebook, The Dirt Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Dirt Pod. Nope. And we're, we're on Twitter <laughs> at Dirt Podcast. That's the one. Um, and we're on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. And all of that stuff is over on our website. TheDirtPod.com. And also over on our website, you can get yourself some merch. You can see our syllabus for educators. And there's a whole bunch of other fun stuff. But most of all, we just love that you listen. Thanks, yeah. everybody. I tried to think of something Indiana Jones would say. And I was just like, I hate snakes. <laughs> snakes Good are all right. He says that. Mm -hmm. Fedora. <laughs> He says that. Goodbye. <laughs>this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.